So you're back for more. All right then, Job chapter 22. It is round three, and the gloves are off. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have increasingly ramped up the brutality of their verbal assaults against Job. We've been tracking this and watching it. They're going after the character of Job, attempting to squeeze Job into their faulty theology. You've watched as Job tenaciously holds on to his innocence before God, not because he's hard-headed, but because he knows, just as you know, just as I would know, he hasn't done anything to deserve this kind of punishment. His friends keep saying, you must have, you have to have, in fact you are right now. And they're pounding him. It is like, truly, a wrestling match. So far, after the first two rounds, finally falls silent. Apparently he realizes he's not doing anybody any good by talking. But Eliphaz and Bildad will each take one more turn at pounding Job with allegations of his sinful complicity to his own pain. In fact, it's, it's fascinating tonight. We go into the courtroom. Eliphaz sets himself up as a prosecuting attorney. And he begins to lay out these allegations against Job. He's going to give three main allegations in his speech tonight as to why it is Job is in the state that he's in. And it is the most specific that Eliphaz has been so far. He's been hemming and hawing and kind of going around the corner and implicating. Well, tonight, in the third round, Eliphaz is not implicating anything. He's not implying. He brutally comes straight out and says, Job, here's your problem, and he gives three allegations. Well, he begins in verse 1 of chapter 22, Eliphaz the Temanite responding, Can a vigorous man be of use to God? Or a wise man be useful to himself? Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you're righteous, or profit if you make your ways perfect? What Eliphaz is saying in response to Job who says, look, I'm righteous before God, and Job keeps turning to God. Remember this. Job turns to God, speaks to God. Eliphaz talks about God, never turns to Him. And Job keeps turning to God and saying, I'm righteous, you know I'm righteous. So what's the deal here? And Eliphaz says, wait a minute, Job. Is the strength or wisdom or righteousness of man any benefit to the Lord? That's what he's saying in these first few verses. If not, then the only explanation for either prosperity or poverty is an individual's righteousness or their sinfulness. If it has nothing to do with God, he says, what does God benefit out of you being righteous? Come on, he's God. And so therefore, the only reason to be righteous is for what you get out of it. Does that make sense? This is where his mindset is. It's faulty theology. It's as though... Eliphaz is saying, Job, you're clinging to your righteousness before God, but what does it matter to God? It actually matters a great deal, Eliphaz. In fact, Psalm 11, verse 7 tells us the Lord is righteous, and He loves righteousness, and the upright will behold His face. That's something probably to recognize about the Lord is, not only is He righteous, but He loves righteousness. He delights in good things. It pleases the Father when people take a non-sinful approach to life, when they live well before Him in goodness and in truth and righteous. The Lord wants us to be righteous because He's righteous. Peter writes that, Be holy because I am holy. Quoting the Old Testament law, Be holy, God said to Israel, because I am holy. Psalm 24 verse 3 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. But Eliphaz has a this-life-only theology. Understand this. Eliphaz's view of righteousness is you're righteous and you get something for it. And that's why you're righteous. The only benefit is the immediate blessing that righteousness brings, or so Eliphaz thinks. God is otherwise unconcerned and distant. So He benefits those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. He nails them. This is Eliphaz. And so Eliphaz would say, Job, if you're in the tank, why would God care about your righteousness now, even if you were righteous? 
My friends, God cared so much about us being righteous that He sent His only begotten Son to secure our righteousness. We've gone over this verse hundreds of times. Jesus became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He became sin. Who knew no sin? That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God wants us to be righteous. And knowing that we couldn't achieve that righteousness, He sent Jesus to die to pay the propitiation for our sins so that then we could be what God wants us to be, righteous, as He is righteous. But Eliphaz doesn't get it. It's all about immediate results. Church, to Eliphaz, is just about doing what you've got to do to get what you want to get. He's very much prosperity gospel. Talk more about that as we go. Verse 4. Is it because of your reverence that he reproves you? That he enters into judgment against you? He says sarcastically, Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? Eliphaz still believes the whole scenario is judgment. That Job is being punished. That's why all this horror has happened. And so now he moves into three specific indictments. Verse 6. For you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause and stripped men naked. Indictment number one. Bad business. You have been a bad businessman, Job, before the Lord, unrighteous in the way you have conducted business. You've ripped off and stripped off your people. You've you've taken from them. You've taken pledges, loans, in essence, loans that ended up taking the shirt off your brother's back. You see what he's saying there. You stripped men naked. You took pledges that ended up doing this. This, by the way, would later be forbidden in Torah law. When Moses came along and the Lord gave the law through him, the idea of making a loan that could strip a brother clean, God didn't allow it. In fact, notice the Father's fairness in this. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 10. He says, When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not enter into his house to take his pledge. In other words, respect his space. You shall remain outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. If he's a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. In other words, you can take it during the day, but you give it back to him. He says, When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. The Lord says, Hey, I'll allow you to make loans and enter into business, but you do it right. You do it with concern and care and mercy for each other. You don't say, take someone's final blanket, their last cloak, and say, that's it, you get this back when you're completely paid off. No, you make sure they have it if they need it in the cold of the night. Well, Eliphaz indicates that Job is ripping people off. Where does he get that idea? Hmm. Verse 7, he comes up with a second indictment. To the weary you have given no water to drink, and from the hungry you have withheld bread. Second indictment, (laughs) self-storage. Self-storage. You've had it to give, but you've refused to give it. And that's your sin, Job. You're ripping people off, and you've amassed all this wealth, but you're not sharing it with anyone. This is a serious charge. In fact, you may recall later, Jesus comes along and gives the parable, in Luke 12, verse 16, of a rich man, who Jesus says was very productive. He began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? He said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Eliphaz accuses Job of this sin. You're a miser, Job. You've ripped people off and you are rich to yourself but not to other people. And in verse 8 we see now the third charge, the third indictment. The earth belongs to the mighty man and the honorable man dwells in it. But you have sent widows away empty... And the strength of the orphans has been crushed. These two verses, again, are difficult to catch in the translation. But he's saying, in essence, Job, you've made friends with the mighty and honorable, but those who are poor and lowly have sent them away. 
Third indictment, preferential treatment. Preferential treatment. You give preference to the mighty. Preference to the rich. Preference to the honorable. And everyone else, you shoo away. And James writes in James chapter 2, verse 8, If you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. God says, look, treat everybody the same. Don't just love those who benefit you. Love everybody. And if someone comes along who can't do a thing for you, man, love them. That's the heart of the Father. But Eliphaz says, Job, that's your problem. Again, he's nailing Job to the wall. Bad business, self-storage, preferential treatment. It's all well and good, but once again, we have right information. Eliphaz is declaring three things that are sinful. Right information, but wrong application because they don't apply to Job. Eliphaz has made himself the prosecutor. This is your problem, Job. These are your indictments. Verse 10, he goes on, Therefore snares surround you, and sudden dread terrifies you, or darkness so that you cannot see, or an abundance of water covers you. Note that. An abundance of water covers you. He says, Is not God in the height of heaven? Look also at the distant stars, how high they are. He's saying, God sees it all. You say, what does God know? Can He judge through the thick darkness? Clouds are a hiding place for Him, so He cannot see, and He walks on the vault of heaven. Will you keep to the ancient path which wicked men have trod, who were snatched away before their time, whose foundations were washed away by a river? Listen, what Eliphaz seems to be doing here is comparing Job to the wickedness of mankind at the flood. At the flood, note that, verse 11. An abundance of water covers you, verse 16. He compares them to wicked men who were snatched away before their time, whose foundations were washed away by a river. That's interesting. According to biblical timeline, history, that would have happened, the flood, 2,100 years or so before Job comes along. And Eliphaz draws off of that. Eight people were saved. You remember Noah and Mrs. Noah and Noah's family, the boys and their wives? They were saved. But the rest of the world was abjectly wicked and so God drowned them for it. And Eliphaz says, that's the place you're in, Job. You're among the wicked. Verse 17, he goes on and says, They said to God, depart from us, and what can the Almighty do to them? Yet, and note this, it's interesting, yet He filled their houses with good things. But the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see and are glad, and the innocent mock them, that is, the innocent mock the wicked, saying, Truly our adversaries are cut off, and their abundance, the fire, has consumed. Eliphaz here is mocking Job. He's saying, You're wicked, like all the wicked who have gone before, and like all the people who get wiped out, and that's what happens, Job. If you're wicked, you get wiped out. But in saying this, Eliphaz trips up in his own theology. He makes a comment that's amazing. Verse 18, he says, Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. What's that mean? God blessed all these people in their wickedness, but because they didn't turn to Him, He wiped them out. Now there is some truth here. Some truth. From a temporal perspective, the Lord does fill the houses of wicked people with good things. You want proof? Look at movie stars. Not all of them. They're not all wicked. There are a few good ones. Kirk Cameron comes to mind. Look at pop music stars. Have you seen Britney Spears' home? And not just to pick on her, but what a great example. Filled with good things. Huge. Massive estate. Or estates. And it's typical. Have you seen where Elton John lives? Let me ask you, knowing that and looking at culture and looking at the world, does the Lord fill the houses of the wicked with good things? Of course He does. Well, wait a minute. Haven't they just earned those things themselves? Well, the Bible tells us every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. James 1.17 In other words, if there is good on this earth, it's from above. If there's blessing in this world, it comes from God. Even for Elton John? Yeah. Yeah. Even for him, for Christine Aguilera? Yeah. 
The blessing is from the Lord. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Does that bother anybody? Why would God do that? Why would God allow the godless, the good things that should belong to us? You know, frankly, Pastor Rick should have Brittany's estate. Why does God allow the godless to live this way? Listen, it's, it's the temporal versus the eternal perspective here. From an eternal perspective, it's the only good they will ever know. It's the only good they're ever going to know. And I say that tragically, not judgmentally. But those who, who amass all kinds of things in the world, man, Jesus says they have their reward. What I'm saying is, this is as good as it ever gets. God is good. God is a gracious and giving and blessing God. And so even in the, in the sum of creation, He has blessed us with life. And then He continues to bless us in this life to give good things. Whether we deserve it or not. As we saw before, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Providing crops for the just and the unjust. Good for the just and the unjust. So everybody receives the benefit, but for those outside of Jesus Christ, please understand, that's the best that it will ever be. This is as good as it gets. For those of you in Christ Jesus, however, this is as bad as it gets. Now think about that. It won't get any worse. In fact, all you have to go from here is is up. It gets better from here. So in your worst place, at the bottom of the pit, guess what? It's not going to get worse for you. It's only going to get better. Ultimately, as Jesus comes and brings us home. That's why in talking about the faithful in Hebrews chapter 11, why he says as it is, the faithful, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God. He's prepared a city for them. So God in His goodness blesses everybody, but the blessing is temporary if you are not in Christ Jesus, if you don't give your life to Him. If you don't enter into that righteousness that He wants you to enter into. Because truly, the goodness of God is so great that He has eternity planned for you and for me. That's what He wants. And I know you understand this. It can only get better from here if you're walking in Christ Jesus. Now Eliphaz turns around and gratuitously gives Job a personal altar call in verse 21. He says, Yield now and be at peace with him. Thereby, good will come to you. Please receive instruction from his mouth and establish his words in your heart. Hey, that's good advice, Eliphaz. <laughs> Misplaced, but good advice. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. You, if you remove unrighteousness far from your tent and place your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks, then the Almighty will be your gold and choice silver to you. Uh-oh. You hear what he's saying here? It's prosperity gospel once again. Okay? The idea of, of prosperity gospel goes back to the beginning. I mean, it's as long as there's been people on the earth. And Eliphaz is is declaring this here. He says, you'll pray to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. Wait, wait, why will he hear you? Because, you know, you're righteous now. He goes on and says, you will decree a thing and it will be established for you. All you have to do is name it and claim it. And light will shine on your ways. When you're cast down, you'll speak with confidence, and the humble person he will save. He'll deliver one who's not innocent, and he will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands, Job. It's the cause and effect of Eliphazian theology. That's what we could call this. Eliphazian theology says, get right, get rich. Get saved, and then you can speak out, you'll decree a thing, and it will be established for you. Blab it, grab it. Name it, claim it. It's yours. And again, this theology is as old as Eliphaz is himself. It's been around a long, long time. It's works-based righteousness. Work for it, and you will get it. And honestly, where faith in Jesus is concerned today, it's heresy. What? Works-based righteousness is heresy because it denies the cross. That I could be saved by the things that I do 
is a heretical statement because it denies the all-sufficient power of the blood of Christ to save me. Now, before we get to Job's response, I've got to ask a question, and I asked it earlier. Um, Where did these indictments of Eliphaz come from? How does he know these things? Why is he stating these things with with such clarity and such specificity? Had Job, first of all, had he done any of these things? Had he ripped people off in bad business deals? Had he been given preferential treatment to the rich over the poor? Had he been a miser with all the things that he had been blessed with? Had he done any of these things? And the answer we can say clearly is no. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Well, verse 8 of chapter 1 told us that. He was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Job was not guilty of these three things. So, so where did Eliphaz get them? Where did they come from? Let me give you two suggestions. The first one is right out of his own guilt. That possibly the motivation for Eliphaz nailing Job down with these three specific things is the guilt of Eliphaz probably in these three same areas. Now I say that because ironically some of the strongest accusations come from those who accuse out of their own guilt. That often the thing that we dislike the most in someone else is the thing we dislike most in ourselves. That the sin we call someone else down on that really, really bugs us is the one that we struggle with the most. You will hear a pastor be absolutely outspoken about pornography, for example, only to discover that that's his biggest sin. Which is why I don't like to talk about pornography much. I wonder how the business dealings of Eliphaz look by the same standard. You know, if if we could transport back and watch him at business, what was he like? David wrote a psalm, Psalm 109. You could call it the psalm of the accused because it's in this psalm, David presents himself as the victim, as the one who's being accused from all sides about all manner of things. And in this psalm, he, he makes this statement, 109, verse 29. He says, Let my accusers be clothed with dishonor and let them cover themselves with their own shame as with a robe. See, there's a connection there between the accusations of a person and the guilt they feel in and of themselves. Accusations often find their roots in the guilt of the accuser. That's something to know, by the way. When someone is highly critical of you, it may well be that they're critical about something that bothers them in and of themselves. Before you stand ready to accuse another person, you might want to test this against your own heart. When you find yourself really coming down on someone, you might want to draw back and say, is this a problem that I struggle with? Maybe it's not some sin that you sin overtly, but inside your own heart and your own mind, it's the one that bothers you. It might be your own problem that you really take issue with. Well, Eliphaz may be condemning from his own sense of guilt. I can't say for sure. It's a possibility. But there's another possibility. Remember, as we started the book of Job, that Eliphaz was described as um, coming from Teman. He's a Temanite. Job was described as the greatest man in the East. An upright, blameless, God-fearing man. In other words, a target. Because anytime someone steps out, anytime someone leads, anytime someone is a standout righteously, a target is put on their back. And I'm talking about the manner of jealous, envious, slanderous people who probably had it in for Job. The second possibility is here, not just the guilt of Eliphaz, but the gossip of us. The gossip of us. Now what I'm trying to do here, when you see these indictments, and they're so specific, is we're trying to figure out, now where did they come from? Where did he get this idea? How could he be so specific? And gossip is a very likely possibility here. That as his three friends came from distant lands and wouldn't have been right there every day to see exactly what went on, they come in from distant lands to console Job, but it seems like maybe they got some bad counsel. Now again, this is just a little bit of guesswork, and and just go with me for a moment on this. Donna was asking me Sunday, how long did this dialogue take place? In fact, from beginning to end, how long is the book of Job? The only time frame we have in the book, at least that I've been able to find, is the first seven days that the 
Job's life falls apart and his friends show up and for seven days and seven nights they sit there in silence. And then they begin their dialogue. And we have no idea how long this dialogue goes on. In fact, let me remind you, it's poetry. Job is written as Hebrew poetry. It's written after the fact by a poet, either Job or we've talked about possibly Elihu himself, that it's written as poetry looking back over what was said and and reflecting on all that, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But how long was it? When Job first opened his mouth to cry, all the way to when God finally responds toward the end of the book, how long was the time frame? We don't know. It could have been a 24-hour period of just non-stop debate. Probably longer than that. In which case there would have been some breaks in between the words where the guys, you know, had to get some rest, had to get some food, had to just get away from the misery of it all, you know. I'm going to go outside for a few minutes, catch my breath. I'm saying that because somewhere in there, I have a guess. My spidey sense tells me that somewhere in there, they were hearing things about Job. Otherwise, I don't understand where else Eliphaz could have come up with this stuff. They're hearing things. You're Job's friend? Oh, <laughs> I heard he was a real miser. Yeah, yeah, he, he just hangs out with rich people. Oh, I heard he ripped off my cousin's sister's uh, hairdresser's nephew. We heard something like that. Or some poor guy couldn't pay his rent. He just took them. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard about that Job. Yeah, well, look at him. Look, he, obviously he's getting his just desserts. And the talking goes around... I point this out, and I wish I could say otherwise, but in my experience, even in the church, the tendency is for us, and I include myself in this, the tendency is for us to join in wrong accusations and assumed allegations without ever talking to the person who's being charged. Without ever, at least, at least Eliphaz brings it to Job. You know, at least Bildad and Zophar, they're talking to Job, but what about all the other people around? And where is this stuff being generated? Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. That doesn't mean prefer each other over non-Christian people either. It means give preference to others. In other words, prefer to see the best in a brother or sister. Prefer to assume the best that you can possibly assume about them. And if you have a question about them, you don't go over here. You don't go back there, you go to them. And we've talked about this again and again, and Scripture brings it up over and over. The issue of gossip. Ask yourself this question. I mean, we all need to personalize this. Personalize this. Do I formulate opinions second or third hand or by hearsay? Or do I go first person in search of the truth? Just this last week, were you in? Did you engage in any conversation over this last week about someone who was not there in a way that did not benefit them? Did you speak any words that undermined or undercut a brother or sister in Christ without taking it to them? It's gossip. It's gossip. And my friends, the problem with it, it's it's one of the strongest desires of the flesh. Remember the old commercial for, uh, what was it, the National Enquirer? I want to know. I want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. Man, that says it. The heart of all people. We just want to know. Did you hear about some, what, what? What was that? Fill me in, man. He did what? She's, really? Oh, man. Well, we shouldn't be talking. Let's pray for him. <laughs> it, 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 it's a desire of the flesh to be in the know. And you see, if we walk by the Spirit, we'll desire what the Spirit desires. In fact, listen to the context of this. Galatians 5.14 For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But, Paul says, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. You've seen churches implode because of gossip and slander. That's what Paul's talking about. But then, and here's the context. He says... Love each other. He says, don't bite and devour. Take care. And then he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Because the desire of the flesh is to bite and devour. Our natural tendency, just here in this room tonight, our natural tendency, if left to our own desires, we would start to gossip about each other. Naturally. 
Which is why we need to set aside the natural man, the natural woman, and walk in the Spirit. Because spiritually, you're not going to do that. The Spirit has no interest in tearing people apart. And Peter wrote it this way, 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. The word fervent in 1 Peter 4.8 is ektenos, which sounds a lot like tenacious. Be tenacious in your love one for another. You be strong-willed about loving each other. Be fervent with it, Peter says. Let that be, that's more important than anything else. Above all, be fervent. And then he says, and listen to this, because love covers a multitude of sins. This is not the outcome of love, it's the outlook of love. What do you mean? The outcome of love is saying that if you love, your sin will get covered. And that's not what Peter's saying. Love covers a multitude of sin does not mean that if you love a lot, your sin gets covered. No. That's the outcome of love. It's the outlook of love that love seeks to cover sin. That love covers a multitude of sin. Love doesn't go around wanting to highlight the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love wants to cover it. Cover it up? Yeah. Yeah. Do you realize that until Jesus came and died on the cross, that the sins of everybody before that who died in faith, God did a big cover-up? He covered all of them. He refused to look at them. He refused to judge by them. He said, no, I'm going to cover you. That's atonement. I'm going to cover you. And when redemption happens on the cross, then it will be washed away. The heart of the Father is to cover the sins of His people. It's a Father's heart. It's a forgiving heart. And it's what we're called to emulate. Well, moving on, Job begins his seventh response to his long-winded prosecutors. And he asks to approach the bench. And I love this about Job. Rather than turn around and argue back to Eliphaz, Job just begins to talk. And he doesn't talk directly to God, but he's talking about the Lord and talking about the Lord as His judge. And he wants to come before the judge. And what I love about Job's responses, especially as we go deeper into the book, is they're increasingly filled with great realizations about God. I'll show you a few of them here. Chapter 23 and verse 1. Then Job replied, Even today, my complaint is rebellion. And he's being sarcastic here. He is replying to Eliphaz. Oh, okay, so today, once again, my complaint is, is rebellion. That's what you're saying. His hand is heavy despite... My groaning, Job says. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I'd present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. Job knows something of the heart of God. If I could get face to face, if I could talk to him, I know he would at least listen to me. Verse 7, he says, There the upright would reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. If I could just come before him. Oh, Job says, if I only had access. Do you ever long for that? Just access before the Father? Here's the beauty of Job's cry. God answered it in Jesus. Through Jesus, by Jesus, He gives us access. It's the realization of admission. First realization that Job is tapping into here. The realization of admission. You are admitted. Hebrews 4.15 tells us we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're not like Esther. Remember, we studied Esther recently. We're not like Esther who, when she came before Ahasuerus, the king, was fearing for her life. Because if he didn't raise the scepter, she was dead. If the scepter stayed down and she walked in there, off with her head. We're not like that. We don't get the axe, we get the access. Okay? 
We get access to the Father by Jesus to the throne of grace. When the blood was sprinkled there on the cross and the veil was torn in the Holy of Holies, it no longer stood separated from the people. Man, what a, what a loud and clear way for God to say, come on in now. You can't approach me now. And you don't have to go through a priest. And you don't have to go through ceremony. And you don't have to stand on religion. All you have to do is claim the blood of Jesus and you have access to me immediately. Instantaneously. Isn't that wonderful? And that's where we are. You know, prayers are in many ways like crossing the Deception Pass Bridge. In that, I go across that bridge three, four times a day and I these days don't look at the scenery that often unless there happens to be a stunning sunset I'm just so used to it and sometimes we can get so used to approaching the Father in our prayers we forget how absolutely breathtaking it is that you can go before God that I can stand before God and and talk to Him that I can approach Him in His majesty and splendor and greatness and have access to Him I mean that is astounding that, that is something that, that it shouldn't be, but it is. Because Jesus granted us access. I, I sent out an email yesterday, perhaps you got it. Uh, you saw the flyer, many of you, that was going around about some prophecy teaching that's happening down in Oak Harbor. And, and as it turns out, it's, it's uh, connected to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So I thought, you know, I'm going to look into this a little bit. First of all, I looked into who was doing this seminar because I couldn't find anything on the, at least the flyer that I saw. It didn't have any return address except for one over in D.C. I'm like, okay, who's doing this? And as I dug and said this in the email, found out it's the Seventh-day Adventist Church down in Oak Harbor. So I began to do a little research. And, and I'll tell you, Seventh-day Adventism is difficult in Christianity because there are those who say it's a cult and there are those who say no it's not they just have some weird stuff it's just the Saturday thing they go to church on Saturday listen if it was just the quirkiness of Saturday I wouldn't have sent the email out but as I looked into it there's something that is core in the teaching of Adventism that you need to be aware of be familiar with October 22nd 1844 man by the name of William Miller, who was one of the early founders of Seventh-day Adventism, he said, this is the day. October 22nd, 1844, Jesus is coming back on this day. And we've got to be ready. And he and Ellen G. White and others gathered together and they put on white robes and they climbed a mountain and they camped out and they waited all day long, October 22nd, 1844. He's coming. He's coming today. And they were ready and prepared. And the next day they referred to that day as the Great Disappointment. Because he didn't come. Don't worry, you didn't miss him. He didn't come. The great disappointment. But then Ellen G. White, who stood up as, as somewhat the leader, she wouldn't be the leader, but she claimed to have the spirit of prophecy within herself, and she claimed to have all kinds of visions around which much of the teaching of Adventism has, has flowed over the years. And she said, no, 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 no. The day was still significant, and this new theology emerged, and the theology was called investigative judgment. She declared that on this legitimate prophetic day, on this day in human time, Jesus, accompanied by the angels, entered into the Holy of Holies in the heavenly places. God told her this. And he entered in at that time into what is called investigative judgment. Well, what is that? It's where the lives of all people who believe in Jesus Christ are under review to determine if they deserve salvation. Hear me. To determine, if you put your faith in Jesus, you put your faith in His death on the cross, His redeeming blood, but White says, great, now you're in this camp of people, but Jesus is doing investigation on you right now to see if you're worthy to receive the blood that He shed on Calvary. And my friends, it's heresy. That is heresy. White declared, names are accepted and names are rejected. In other words, access to the throne of grace is not unconditional, not paid for in full by the blood of Jesus. No, His blood was shed, but then He determines, depending on what you have done with your life, if you are to receive access through His blood that was shed. It's heresy. It is not what 
Jesus claimed for us. Job said, oh, that I might come before His seat. The Word of God says, He Himself is our peace. Who made both groups, and Paul is talking about Jews and Gentiles, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Now listen. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity which is the law, which highlights our sin. Paul says, He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near, for through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. Paul made it absolutely clear. By redemption on the cross, we have access to God our Father and not based on anything that you've done or I have done. We are not under investigative judgment. That's a farce. It's not what Scripture teaches. Paul says in Ephesians 3.12, we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. So Rick, all you're saying is I have to have faith and that's it? Exactly. What about works? Hey, the works are going to flow. You have faith in Jesus Christ, the works are going to come. And the works will evident that you have faith, but it's faith first, gang. It's because you have faith in Jesus that you begin to behave and act and move differently than if you didn't have faith in Him at all. Faith in the grace of God. That's what saves you, and Scripture is absolutely clear. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, By grace you have been saved, and this not of yourselves, through faith, that no man will rest. White got it wrong. Well, verse 8, so Job has a realization of admission. He longs to come before the seat. Verse 8, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I can't behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. But he knows the way I take. Number two, my friends, the realization of observation. I love this verse. Job blurts out one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture right here. I may not know where he is, but He always knows where I am. I can't see Him before me, and I've looked for Him behind me, and I'm not sure if He's to the right or or to the left or to the right. I'm confused about that. I'm not seeing Him, but Job says, but I know He knows where I am. He knows the way that I take. He's always in observation of me. The realization of observation. God's always observing you. He knows right where you are. He knows what's going on. He knows Margaret Rose is knitting right now. No, it's okay. You should. That's good. No, keep knitting. I just hope it's for me. He knows what we're up to. And it's not because He's sitting there in investigative judgment. He knows because He loves you. And He's aware of you. I'm not always aware of the Lord. I'm not. I mean, truth be told, there are plenty of times where I'm wandering around not sure what God's up to. We pray. We call out. I don't know what He's doing with our property over there. Got the site plan review back. We've got some head scratching to do with that. What do we do with this? I don't know. I don't know what you're up to, Lord. But He knows what He's doing and He knows where we are. Psalm 121, verse 8, The Lord Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. And I know I've shared this before, but it's a perfect example. The house catches fire. Mom, Dad get the, the two boys and they get out into the front yard. But where's the daughter? She's not there. Dad looks up and the flames are high and the smoke is up, but he can see his daughter in the second story window. And she's crying and she's looking out. And the smoke is in front of her and he cries out, Honey, jump, I'll catch you. Jump, I'm right here. And the little girl says, Dad, I can't see you. He says, That's okay. I can see you. And it's that perspective. I can't always see God. I don't always know what He's doing. I don't know what He's up to. But He sees me. He is aware of me. He knows what's going on in my life. And He's ready to catch me. Even when I can't see Him. Well, you won't always be able to find God, but He will always find you. Job keys in on this huge principle of God's presence. It's not just about when you feel Him. Hey, there are times when you feel Him. You feel His presence. You just know God is here and you're, you're wrapped up in the joy of His Spirit. I'm not denying that. But there are plenty of other times when you are simply not aware of Him, but He's there. 
He is present and He is in full observance of His children. Jesus said in John 14.8, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see Me, but you will see Me. Because I live, you will live also. And in that day, you will know that I am in My Father. And I love this, He says, And you in Me, and I in you. That's how close we are. How near to your Spirit the Spirit of Christ Jesus is. He who has My commandments and keeps them is the one who loves Me. And he who loves Me, oh, he'll be loved by My Father and I will love him and will disclose Myself to him. The Bible says Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened to you? Or what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said, Look, if anyone loves Me, He'll keep my word and my Father will love him. And listen, we will come to him and make our abode with him. It means if you love the Lord, he and the Father are moving in. Making their home in your heart. Present in your spirit. You won't always know they're there. I don't always know that my mother-in-law is home. Okay, oftentimes I do. But, but there are times I, I don't know. Until the door flies open and Kramer, uh, Sharon, comes bouncing through the door. I don't always know, but she's there. Far more so with Jesus. You're not always aware, but He is there. Please receive that in faith. Understand that in your heart. He is present with you at all times, whether you feel Him or not. Now Job comes to another realization. Realization of admission, the realization of observation. Now he begins to realize what God may actually be doing here in his life. Verse 10, he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And it's the realization of sanctification. He's starting to get it. He knows God's doing something here. He knows God is involved with this, with this turmoil and this tribulation and this sorrow. He knows God's involved somehow. But Job is finally starting to key in. Maybe, maybe He's trying me. Maybe He's purifying me. Maybe He's sanctifying me here. He, he says this great statement, When He has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job's tapping into another truth. It's not about persecution. It's about sanctification. And we spent a whole uh, Sunday morning talking about this. That the path of discipleship is painful. That the walk of the disciple will be through hard times and persecution. But it's a purification process where God is making you more like Jesus. And Job says, maybe I'm being purified and I will come out as pure gold. 1 Peter 1.6 In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while... If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's that process of sanctification, of purification, discipleship. It requires heat to burn out the impurities. Perhaps you've heard about how a smelter that is one who, who purifies gold, how he would go about it, at least in the old days. How they would heat the gold up until it was liquid. And he would continue to heat and he would continue to work with that gold until the way he knew it was absolutely pure was when he could see the reflection of his own face there in the gold. That's when he knew it was pure. And that's when we know we're pure, is when Jesus sees the reflection of himself in us. You know you're getting there when someone looks at you and, man, you just, you just remind me of Jesus. When I see you, when I hear you talk, when I see the way you treat other people, I just see Jesus in that. Hey, you're getting close. You're getting purified. Now someone might say, well, but why does he desire to see himself in me? And what's the deal with that? Because God knows something. He realizes, gang, that his life Listen to this. His life is our life. That we were created to be like Him. 
that we were made to receive His life in us. Not to become God. He's the only one who will ever be God. Thank goodness. But that we were made... Jesus put it this way, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But He's not talking about this. He's not talking about today, tomorrow, next week. He's not talking about your your physical existence when He says that. No, life and abundantly. And Jesus said in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's life. Life is being in the Father. And the Lord knows this. And He knows we will be at our most joyful, at our happiest, at our best, at our most wondrous when we are filled up with Him, when He looks at us and He sees Himself. When we look like Jesus, we are the most fulfilled that we can possibly be. 1 John 5.20 says, We know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him, Jesus, who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. And He says, This is true God and eternal life. It's one of my favorite verses in all Scripture. Jesus Christ is true God and eternal life. You want life? It's Jesus. It's in Him. He tries us, He sanctifies us, He purifies us so that we may have life, His life, in us. And I really think this is still way beyond our comprehension. Even as I speak the words, I don't think we get how much of our lives will be filled up by the Spirit of Christ when we're with Him in heaven. When we're actually present with Him. We get glimmers of it, glimpses now, little tastes of it. But the day is coming when we will be so filled with the knowledge of Jesus and in His presence we will know life. And John puts it this way, 1 John 3, 2, We know that when He appears we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. Maybe that's the deal. When He's tried me, I'll come forth as gold. Verse 13, Job said, But but He's unique. And who can turn Him? And what His soul desires, that He does. Another great realization here, Job. Number four, I guess it is, the the realization of no variation. The realization of no variation. There is no variation with the Lord. He says, He's unique. Who can turn Him? You can't. You cannot turn the Father. He does not vary. James 1.17 again. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. He's always consistent. Romans 11.29 The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable or as the King James puts it, without repentance, without turning. God has set His course and He is following through with it. And Hebrews 13.8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which, you know what that means for us? It means we can count on Him. It means He's unchanging. It means what you have believed about Him that is based in His Word and in the truth of His Spirit, you can count on to the very end. It will not change. Man, that's good news. Solid, consistent. He is holy and completely reliable. Verse 14 For He performs what is appointed for me. And many such decrees are with Him. In other words, He knows what He's doing. God's on top of it. He's working His plan. You remember what what He said through Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29.11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. Verse 15, Job says, Therefore... I would be dismayed at His presence. When I consider, I'm terrified of Him. He's backpedaling a bit. I want an audience with the Lord. But if I got it, that would be terrifying. (laughs) That would be scary. He says, It is God who has made my heart faint, and the Almighty who has dismayed me. But I am not silenced by the darkness nor deep gloom which covers me. Listen, when Job says this in verse 16, He's not saying it in a way of blame. He's saying it in the same way that someone, if you have someone you're absolutely in love with, but you don't feel like you're communicating, it breaks your heart. When Cheryl and I are at odds, and it's not that often, truly, but when it happens, the most difficult thing about it for me as a husband is that I'm not communicating well with my wife and I feel distant and it breaks my heart. 
And this is where Job is at with the Lord. It's God who made my heart faint. Well, how could God make Job's heart faint? Because Job loves him so much. Because he has a passionate relationship with his father. The Almighty has dismayed me. I don't understand what's going on. I'm trying to communicate to him. He's not communicating to me. And truly, God is silent right now. He's not saying anything. And it's hard for Job because he loves his Lord so much. And he says, I'm not silenced by the darkness nor deep gloom which covers me. I know God's involved in all this, but I'm in the dark here. I'm in the dark. Now, it doesn't silence me. I'm still talking. (laughs) But I'm in the dark. What I need is to get before God to present my case to Him, but I can't find the courtroom. Where is it? Job, have you already forgotten what you said just moments ago? You remember what He said? I know that my Redeemer lives. I know my Redeemer lives. But Job, he slides into trying to be a self-defender. I know my Redeemer, my kinsman Redeemer, my Gaal, the one who stands for me, the one who argues the case for my defense attorney. I know he lives, Job said. But now Job's trying to defend himself, saying if I could stand before God, I could give defense. Listen, last thing I want to tell you tonight, and it's so important... When emotional or physical pain in our lives, or spiritual pain, when it begins to swell up in us, it's very easy to forget what our position is to be. We are not defense attorneys. Mark this, friends. We are not defense attorneys. That's not the role we've been called to. What are we then? We're witnesses. That's it. We go to the witness stand. What's our witness? I have a defense attorney and his name is Jesus Christ. And he goes for me. He stands for me. He speaks for me. I can't speak for myself. I'd mess it up. I don't know all the legal jargon. I don't know how to get by or around or through the law. I can't keep it. But, but, but he knows the law inside and out. He kept the law perfectly, didn't he? And so he's my defense attorney. I'm just a witness. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and shall be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, even to all the remotest part of the earth. And so now, my role is not to defend myself before God. Jesus has it covered. I just am a witness of His. And I'm going to go around telling people, do you, need, do you want a good attorney? <laughs> I got the best. You want an advocate? Let me turn you on to Jesus Christ. He's the defense attorney. You don't have to defend yourself. Just trust in Him. And so I witness here, but I also will just be a witness there. What do you mean? When I stand before the Father, when I take that ultimate witness stand, all I need to say is Jesus Christ is my defense attorney. Jesus is my Redeemer. Jesus is my Advocate. And I guarantee you, the Bible guarantees you, any charges made against you will not stand for this reason. 1 John 2.1 If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. Praise God. There's one outstanding question from this, from this chapter. Job says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. He said, I have not departed from the command of his lips. If Job lived 4,000 years ago and the law was written after the fact, later, when Moses came, 3,500, 3,000 years ago time frame, if in fact Job lived 4,000 years ago, the Hebrew Scriptures were not written. How in the world can Job treasure the words of his mouth more than his necessary food? How can he keep his commandments if the commandments were not even written yet? We'll talk about that Sunday morning. Come on back and we'll do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for our advocate for Jesus. And Lord, we know, I know even now, there are indictments out there against me. There are charges made. There are things being said, not just here, but I I know Satan, our adversary, is every day is trying to make charges. And every day... Lord, it's Your Word that tells us Jesus stands making intercession for us, defending, 
providing our, not just our covering, but our complete cleansing. And we know that day is coming when our advocate will say, hey, he's one of my, she's, she's mine, she belongs to me. And we will just be at home with you. And we long for that day. We look forward to it. We're excited about it, Lord. My prayer is that until that day comes, that you would make us effective witnesses of yours. That we would be a people who are going out and telling everybody about our advocate, Jesus. That people will be saved and find their redemption in you. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. We pray in your name. Amen.